I just don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast, True Crimes and Storytime. I'm Michelle. I'm Kirsten. And it's my true crime. Listen, every time I say True Crimes and Storytimes, I always want to say <laughs> True Times and Story Crimes. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> every single time. Anyway. But um, it's my last true crime before Kirsten takes over again. Yeah, so next week you're going to get an episode from Michelle on Wednesday. Yep. And then my episode will be Friday. Yes, ma'am. And I got I got a fucked up one for you guys, so you better be ready. It's somebody big. Somebody big. It's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but, but today I am covering Natalie Holloway, which is also another huge case. I have never heard of it. Really? That's crazy. I don't think so. Maybe if you get into the It's details, a pretty huge case. I might recognize it, but the name, like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't recognize. Yeah. Also, if you haven't already, go subscribe to our Patreon. Yep, we still have, we're sitting at one patron. Yep. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's get just, into it. Yeah. I was about to say that. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> we're good, we're good, we're good. Okay. So, um, Natalie Ann Holloway was born on October 21st of 1986. She was born to Dave and Elizabeth, or we'll call her Beth from now on, Holloway. Okay. She was born in Memphis, Tennessee. And her parents divorced in 1993. Okay. So. All before our time. Yep. Natalie and her younger brother were raised by her mother, Beth. And by their mother, not her mother. Their mother. (laughs) Yeah. In 2000, Beth remarried a man named George or Jug Twitty. Interesting name. We'll call him Jug probably from now on. Okay. He was a prominent Alabama businessman and they ended up moving to Mountain Brook, Alabama. From Memphis. I've never been to Alabama. I have never been to Alabama either. I want to. I want to go to Alabama. There's other places I want to go to before Alabama. And I really want to go to Arizona. I know you've been there multiple times. Arizona is dope. It's like one of the coolest places, I swear. I want to go. There's so many like handmade items, handmade jewelry from like Native Americans and stuff that have lived there. That's super cool. There's really cool like artifacts you can go see. And like I saw like pictographs and... Stuff like that, that the Indians originally painted on the walls Mm -hmm. and where their home was. Mm -hmm. It was so cool. And, like, this wall that they built and all kinds of stuff um, for their home. Mm -hmm. Crazy cool place. I I really want to visit, like, Native American grounds, Mm -hmm. like, where they still live. But at the same time, I don't want to be, like, disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. I just want to, like, learn about it. Right. I don't blame you. And when I went to Arizona, I got obsessed with something called a cocapelli. I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. If you know, you know. I'm just, I'm not going to explain that so we can get back into the case because this one's kind of a long one. Let's go. So Natalie went to Mountain Brook High School where she participated in National Honor Society, the dance squad, and other extracurricular activities. Her mom worked in the Mountain Brook school system and her stepfather worked as an insurance agent at this time. And she would eventually graduate in May of 2005 with honors. Nice. 
Natalie was scheduled to attend University of Alabama on a full-ride scholarship, which is awesome. That's great. And she wanted to pursue a pre-med track. And if you don't know what pre-med is, it stands for pre-medical, which is an educational track that undergraduate students in the United States pursue prior to becoming medical students. It involves activities that prepare a student for medical school, such as pre-med coursework, volunteer activities, clinical experience, research, and the application process. Some pre-med programs providing broad preparation are referred to as pre-professional and may simultaneously prepare students for entry into a variety of first professional degree or graduate school programs that require similar prerequisites, such as medical, veterinary, or pharmacy schools. Okay. So, just to get that out of the way, if you didn't know what that was, that's what it is. Okay. That's mostly for our non-American listeners. Yep. On Thursday, May 26th of 2005, Natalie and 124 other graduates arrived in Aruba for a five-day unofficial graduation trip. Nice. All these students were accompanied by seven chaperones. 124 students and seven adults. Yep. That's a, that's a lot. That's, that's a very mm-hmm. large ratio of yeah. students to yeah. adults. So, it was 125 counting Natalie, so 125 divided by seven. 17 students per adult oh i guess that's not but as bad this, as they weren't supposed to be chaperoning them like watching over them all day anyways well they are graduates yeah they're so out of graduating high school so. yeah so according to one of the chaperones which is also a teacher they would just check in with the students once a day to see how things were going they weren't supposed to be watching over their every move so okay the woman who put the trip together stated that basically the chaperones were just there if really Oh, if anyone needed any help, they weren't supposed to keep up with the students every move. Okay. The police commissioner, who later worked on Natalie's case, which, uh, what did I want to say? Spoiler alert. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, on that. (laughs) I couldn't remember the word. (laughs) Brain fart. So, um, the police commissioner, who later worked on Natalie's case, would state... The students engaged in wild partying, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night. We know the Holiday Inn told them they weren't welcome next year. Natalie, we know she drank all day, every day. We have statements that she started every morning with cocktails. So much drinking that Natalie didn't show up for breakfast for two mornings. Dang. Two of Natalie's classmates, Liz Kane and Claire Fireman, agreed that the drinking was kind of excessive. Yeah. But I wrote, which honestly I roll that they even said that because they were all 18, just graduated, and they yeah. were trying to have a good time. It was only like a five-day trip. Yeah. So like... Like whatever. Mm, I mean, I can see was if, it it, if she was sloppy drunk by the end of the night, stumbling over everything, mm-hmm. you know, like couldn't even hold herself up. But if she was just having occasional drinks throughout the day yeah. on her graduation trip, yeah, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, no. So, on Monday, May 30th, Natalie was seen leaving the Orangisted Bar and Nightclub, Carlos and Charlie's, at 1.30 a.m. She left in a car with 17-year-old Jeron Vandersloot, which was a Dutch honor student who was living in Aruba and attending the International School of Aruba. Okay. There were two other people in the car as well, brothers, 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo, which was the owner of the car, an 18-year-old Satish Kalpo. Okay. 
Natalie was supposed to fly out the next day. So she was at the bar till 1.30, but she was supposed to fly out the next day. Oh, okay. Her packed luggage and passport was found in her room at the Holiday Inn, but no one ever saw Natalie again. Thanks. Reuben authorities then initiated the search for Natalie on the island and in the surrounding waters. Immediately after Natalie missed her flight, her parents flew to Aruba with friends in a private jet. So they got them over there to try to get, you know. Try and find her. Yep. So within four hours of landing in Aruba, her family presented the name and address of Vandersloot, who was the person who Natalie left the nightclub with. Oh, yeah. Bess said that Vandersloot's name was given to her by the night manager at the Holiday Inn, who also recognized him on videotape. Dave, Beth, their friends, and two Aruban police officers showed up at Vandersloot's home to look for Natalie. At first, he acted like he didn't even know Natalie, but then he told a story that corrob- that was corroborated with Deepak Kalpo's story, which okay. was the owner of the car that they were in. Okay. And, yeah, he was present in the home at the time. Deepak was? Yeah, with Vandersloot. Gotcha. So, Vandersloot said... They drove Natalie to the California Lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because she wanted to see the sharks. Hmm. Then they said that they dropped her off at her hotel at 2 a.m. According to Vandersloot, Natalie fell down when she got out of the car but refused his help. He said that when he and Deepak drove away, they saw a dark man in a black shirt approach Natalie. And he also said that they resembled like a security guard. Okay. Because some of these hotels did have security guards, so I think that's kind of where he was. I can see if it's like a popular, like, tourist place. Yeah. Yeah. The search and rescue efforts happened, obviously, immediately after Natalie was uh, missing. Hundreds of volunteers from Aruba and the U.S. aided in the search for Natalie. Wouldn't there, if they dropped her off back at the hotel, wouldn't there have been security cameras? We'll get into that. Okay. During the first days of the search, the Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants the day off to help in the search. Okay. Fifty Dutch marines conducted an extensive search of the shoreline, and Aruban banks raised $20,000 and provided other support to help search volunteers. Wow. Beth was provided housing initially at the Holiday Inn and stayed in the exact same room that Natalie had stayed in. That would be kind of eerie. Yeah. But she ended up moving to the presidential suite at the Wyndham Hotel. Okay. It didn't really say why, but... So, reports said that Natalie was not caught on the Holiday Inn surveillance camera. Like I just said. Mm-hmm. But Beth had said some statements that led people to think that the cameras were not turned on at all at the Holiday Inn. Weird. According to an April 19, 2006 statement made by Beth... The video cameras at the Holiday Inn were not functioning the night that Natalie disappeared. Just that night? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Also, Beth has made other statements indicating that they were working and has stated so in her book. So were they working or were they not? Police Commissioner John Vanderstraten, the initial head of the investigation until his 2005 Retirement said that Natalie didn't have to go through the lobby to return to her room. So, maybe that's why. Yeah, I, some hotels have, or I think they have most, side entrance, yeah. side entrances and stuff. Right. 
So they extensively searched for physical evidence, obviously. Um, they did have a few false leads, including when they thought there was a possible blood sample in Deepak's car, but it turned out it wasn't blood. Okay. American law enforcement really cooperated with the Aruban government in the early days of the investigation. That's good. So U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice stated to reporters that the United States was in constant contact with the Aruban authorities. Another State Department official indicated substantial resources are being applied to this as the Aruban officials continue to ask for more. On June 5th, Aruban police detained Nick John and Abraham Jones, who were both former security guards from the nearby Allegro Hotel. I think, so they were detained on suspicion of kidnapping and murder. Um, authorities in Aruba can arrest people on suspicion. They don't have to have any evidence. Hmm. So that's what's different. Okay. Um, and I think she, they arrested them on suspicion because... They were former security guards, and Vandersloot had said... They looked like security guards. Mm -hmm, that approached Natalie. Yeah. So, authorities have never officially said why they arrested them, but according to news accounts, statements made by Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers may have been a part of why they were arrested. I think it was just their, their statements and mm -hmm. stuff. So, reports also said that these two men were known for cruising around hotels to pick up women and at least one of the men had a prior incident with the law. But they were both released June 13th without being charged with anything. Hmm. On June 9th, Vandersloot and the Cal Poe brothers were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and the murder of Natalie. Okay. A Reuben law allows arrest on serious suspicion, but in order to keep them in custody... Custody? Custody? <laughs> But in order to keep them in custody, they have to meet evidence requirements periodically. So they do checks, like, every week. Okay, well, do you have evidence? Do you have evidence? If they don't have enough evidence, they eventually get released. Because they can just be like, oh, so-and-so did it. And then the police are like, oh, well, okay. And then they arrest them. arrest like, them. Yeah. And they really didn't do it. And they don't have any evidence. Right. Yeah, they can't just keep them in jail without any evidence. Mm -hmm. So according to Commissioner Dompig... These three suspects were the main suspects from the get-go. They also stated that they started observing them closely three days after Natalie's disappearance. This included surveillance, wiretapping, and even monitoring their email. So, pressure from Natalie's family caused Reuben authorities to prematurely arrest the three men and stop the surveillance. On June 11th, David Cruz, who was a spokesman for Reuben Minister of Justice, falsely announced that Natalie was dead and they knew the location of her body. He later retracted the statement, saying that he was a victim of a misinformation campaign. What? Yeah. How fucking disrespectful. That's ridiculous. So, Commissioner Dompig alleged to the Associated Press that one of the young men they had detained admitted something bad happened to Natalie at the beach and he was leading police to the scene. The next morning, prosecution spokeswoman Vivian Van Der Bison refused to confirm or deny the allegation. Instead, she said that the investigation was at a very crucial, very important moment. So, now June 17th, a sixth person was arrested. How many people do they think did this? This was disc jockey Steve Gregory Crow. 
he was evidently arrested because of something one of the other detainees had confessed. Okay. June 22nd, the Reuben police also detained Vandersloot's father, Paulus Vandersloot. What the heck? They detained him for questioning, but he was arrested the same day. Both I'm Paulus so and Steve were released on June 26th. So they're just arresting people. And releasing. This is ridiculous. So now, the three young men that were detained changed their stories. Of course they did. All three said that Vandersloot and Natalie were dropped off at the Marriott Hotel near the Fishman's Hut. Fisherman's Huts. Sorry. Vandersloot said he didn't harm Natalie, but left her on the beach. According to Satash Kalpo's attorney, David Koch, <laughs> Vandersloot <laughs> called David Kalpo. <laughs> Why do we always laugh at the stupidest shit? Dude? I don't know. <laughs> the way I said it. It was so silent, too, afterwards. <laughs> David like, Koch. <laughs> Okay, okay. Vandersloot called Deepak Kalpo to tell the latter that he was walking home and sent him a text message 40 minutes later. So, Deepak told Sata... Gosh, I the can't say. attorney. Yeah. Anyways, they you guys talk. get what I'm saying. I can't talk today. At some time during the interrogation, Vandersloot detailed a third account that he was dropped off at home and Natalie was driven off by the Kalpo brothers. What's going on here? Yeah. So, uh, Commissioner Dom Pig discounted the story, stating, This latest story came when Vandersloot saw the other guys, the cowpos, were kind of finger-pointing in his direction, and he wanted to screw them also by saying he was dropped off. But that story doesn't check out at all. He just wanted to screw Deepak. They had great arguments about this in front of the judge, because their stories didn't match. This girl, she was from Alabama. She's not going to stay in the car with two black kids. We believe the second story, that they were dropped off by the Marriott. Hmm. Okay. Following hearings before a judge, the Calpo brothers were released on Monday, July 4th. But Vandersloot was detained for an additional 60 days. Also on July 4th, Royal Netherlands Air Force deployed three F-16 aircrafts equipped with infrared sensors to help with the search. Nice. But unfortunately, the results came up empty. Dang. In March 2006, it was reported that satellite photos were being compared with photographs taken more recently, which were probably the photos that the F-16 took. They were trying to find shifts in the ground that could be Natalie's grave. Thanks. A local gardener came forward with some information. There was a small pond near the Aruba Racquet Club, which was also close to the Marriott Beach Hotel that okay. Vandersloot was talking about mm -hmm. before. It was partially drained between July 27th through the 30th in 2005. According to Jug Twitty, the gardener claimed to have seen Vandersloot attempting to hide his face as he drove into the Racquet Club with the Calpo brothers on the very early morning of May 30th, between 2.30 a.m. and 3 a.m. Which is when she left with them in the mm -hmm, car. Mm -hmm. Nancy Grace, which is a television journalist, if you don't know her, a lot of people do, she's pretty famous, described the gardener as the man whose testimony cracks the case wide open. <laughs> Another person, who they called the jogger, claimed to have seen men burying a blonde-haired woman in a landfill during the afternoon of May 30th. But Natalie was, wouldn't, wasn't disappeared yet. Yeah. 
The police had searched the landfill in the days following Natalie's disappearance, like just in case, you know. Mm-hmm. After the jogger's statements, the landfill was searched three more times. The FBI used cadaver dogs to assist in the recovery operation. But, unfortunately, this didn't bring anything up. So. Natalie's family originally offered $175,000, and donors added another $50,000 for the safe return of Natalie. Two months after her disappearance, the reward raised from $200,000 to $1 million, with a $100,000 reward for information at least leading them to her remains. It's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. In August of 2005, the reward for Natalie's remains increased from 100000 to 250000 Wow. The FBI announced that Aruban authorities had provided them with documents, suspect interviews, and other evidence. Investigators found a piece of duct tape of blonde hair attached to it. So, the samples were tested at a Dutch lab. A group from the Aruban police then traveled to Quantico, Virginia to consult with American investigators. And the hair samples were tested a second time there. But the FBI FBI then announced that the hair did not belong to Natalie. On August 26th, the Calpo brothers were arrested again. Um, they were arrested with a new suspect, 21-year-old Freddie Armbatsis. Armbatsis. Yep. Armbatsis' lawyer said that his client was suspected of taking photographs of an underage girl and having inappropriate physical contact with the same girl. Okay. This incident allegedly occurred before Natalie's disappearance, though. His friends, Vandersloot and the Cowpo brothers, were allegedly involved in the incident as well. Vandersloot's mother, Anita Vandersloot, stated, It's a desperate attempt to get the boys to talk, but there is nothing to talk about. While no public explanation was then made for the Cowpo arrest, Dompig later said that it was an unsuccessful attempt to pressure the brothers into confessing. So, hmm. September 3rd. The detained suspects were released by a judge, despite the attempts of the prosecution to keep them in custody. They can't make up their mind. The suspects were released on the condition that they remained available to police, though. On September 14th, all restrictions on them were removed by Combined Appeals Court of the Netherlands, Antilles, and Aruba. In the months following his release, Van der Sloot gave several interviews that explained his version of the events. The most notable interview was broadcast on Fox News over three nights in March 2006. During the interview, Vandersloot indicated that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he did not because he didn't have a condom. He said that Natalie wanted them to stay on the beach, but that he had to go to school in the morning. According to Vandersloot, he was picked up by Satash Kalpo at 3 o'clock a.m. and left Natalie sitting on the beach. Okay. In August 2005, David, Calpo's attorney, stated that his client had gone to sleep and had not returned to drive Vandersloot home. So, Vandersloot stated that he was somewhat ashamed to have left a young woman alone on the beach and related that he was not truthful at first because he was convinced that Natalie would soon turn up. Hmm. In January 2006, the FBI and Aruban authorities interviewed, or in some cases re-interviewed, several of Natalie's classmates in Alabama. 
On January 17th, Aruban police searched for Natalie's body in sand dunes on the northwest coast of Aruba, as well as areas close by Marriott Beach. Additional searches took place in March and April of 2006, with no results, unfortunately. Yikes. Shortly before leaving the case, Dompik gave an interview to CBS where he stated that he believed Natalie was not murdered, but probably died from alcohol and or drug poisoning and that someone later hid her body. Why would he think that? Because she was drinking? Probably, but there's some other things too. Don Pig also stated that Aruba had spent about $3 million on the investigation, which was about 40% of the police operational budget. Dang. Don Pig indicated that there was evidence that pointed to possession, though not necessarily use, of illicit drugs by Natalie. Oh. Although members of Natalie's family denied that she was using drugs at all. So. Okay. On April 15th of 2006... Jeffrey Van Kromvoort was arrested by Aruban authorities. This was on suspicion of dealing narcotics, which might have also been connected to Natalie's murder. Okay. At his first court appearance, his detainment was extended by eight days, but he ended up being released on April 25th. Another person with the initials AB was arrested on April 22nd, but ended up being released on the same day. So, are they just, like, going after random people? No, I think it's just people that they suspect. Like, they have they have to have serious suspicion to murder someone. Like, they have to have something to back up the fact that they're arresting them. Right. They can't just arrest, like, random people. Right. But. May 17th, Guado Weaver was detained in the Netherlands for assisting in the abducting, battering, and killing of Natalie. And a little fun fact about this guy was he was the son of a former Aruban politician. Nice. Yeah. He was questioned for six days in the Netherlands, and Aruban prosecutors wanted to have him transferred over to the island, but he ended up being released by agreement between the prosecutor and his attorney. So, at this point in the investigation, the Netherlands took over. Okay. Following receipt of extensive case documentation in Rotterdam, a team of the Dutch National Police started to work on the case in September. Um, April 16th of 2007, so we're jumping a year, a Aruban Dutch team decided to pursue the investigation in Aruba. A book by Vandersloot and reporter, Dezak Natalie Holloway, which is also states the case of Natalie Holloway, was published in Dutch in April of 2007. So, Van and a reporter wrote a book about it? Yep. Okay. In the book, Van gives his perspective of the night Natalie disappeared and the media frenzy that followed. He admits to and apologizes for his initial untruths, but maintains his innocence. On April 27th, a completely new search started for Natalie. What? How are they? How do they believe this guy? Vandersloot. They don't have evidence. He's changed I don't his think story it's that so they, be- they don't believe him, or they believe what he's saying. I think it's the fact that they don't have any evidence. I wouldn't trust a single thing he says. No. So, um, this search consisted of about 20 investigators and was at the Vandersloot residence in Aruba. Dutch authorities searched the property and the surrounding area with shovels and metal rods to penetrate the dirt. Prosecution spokeswoman Van der Beesen stated, 
The investigation has netter netter <laughs> netter. The investigation has never stopped, and the Dutch authorities are completely reviewing the case for new indications. A statement from the prosecutor's office said, The team has indications that justifies a more thorough search. Investigators did not comment on what got them to do the new search, except that it was not related to Vandersloot's book. Because <laughs> he's still claiming innocence in his book, so... <laughs> Obviously, how are they going to go off anything that he says? Right. According to Paulus Vandersloot, which is Vandersloot's dad, nothing suspicious was found, and all that was seized were diary entries of him and his wife and his personal computer, which were subsequently returned. According to Chassie Mansour, managing editor of Aruba's Diario newspaper, investigators were following up on statements made during early suspect interrogations regarding communications between the Calpo brothers and Vandersloot. He also said investigators could be seen examining a laptop at the house. On May 12th, the Calpo brothers' home was searched by police. The two brothers were detained for about an hour upon objecting to the entry by police and Dutch investigators, but were released when the authorities left. So they just kept them in detainment until they got to like keep them out of the way and yeah. stuff. So according to David, the Calpo brothers' lawyer, the brothers objected to the search because officials did not show them an order justifying the intrusion. I mean, I would too. Yeah. Even if I wasn't guilty, I wouldn't want you like searching my home. Like if there was no reason, if I, I mean, on if one they hand, showed up at my door today. And said, yeah. I need to search your home. I'd in be like, one hand, no, no, no. it's like, if you say no, then they're going to be more suspicious. But on the yeah. other hand, it's like, if you don't have a warrant, you're not coming in my house. Yeah. This is my personal property. You can right. go get a warrant. Especially when I know damn well that I haven't done a damn thing. And you're going to come in and destroy my shit because you know that's no. what they do. They yeah. come in and go through everything and then leave it for you to clean up. Mm-hmm. Not happening. No. Um, a statement from Vander Beesen did not mention what, if anything, officials were searching for, but indicated nothing was taken from their house. A subsequent statement from the Aruban prosecutor's office indicated that the purpose of the visit was to get a better image of the place or circumstances where an offense may have been committed and to understand the chain of events leading to the offense. Citing what was described as newly discovered evidence, Aruban investigators rearrested Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers on November 21, 2007, on suspicion of involvement in manslaughter and causing serious bodily harm that resulted in the death of Natalie. Vandersloot was detained by Dutch authorities in the Netherlands, while the Calpo brothers were detained in Aruba. Vandersloot was returned to Aruba, where he was incarcerated. Soon after, Dave Holloway announced a new search for his daughter that probed the sea beyond the original 330-foot depths, or so, 100 meters. So, he was arrested. Actually arrested. This yeah, time. he was incarcerated, for okay. real. Okay. So, um, the search that Dave announced involved a vessel called the Persistence and was abandoned due to the lack of funds at the end of February 2008 when no evidence was found. On November 30th, a judge ordered the release of the Calpo brothers. Again. My goodness. Despite attempts by the prosecution to extend their detention, the brothers were released on the following day. 
The prosecution appealed their release, which was denied on December 5th with the court writing, notwithstanding expensive and lengthy investigations on her disappearance and on people who could be involved, the file against the suspect does not contain direct indications that Natalie passed away due to a violent crime. Vandersloot was released without charge on December 7th due to the lack of evidence implicating him as well as the lack of evidence that Natalie died as a result of a violent crime. This is pissing me off. Yeah. <laughs> the prosecution indicated that it would not appeal this because, I mean, they already tried once with mm-hmm. the Cowpoe brothers and they got denied. So, On December 18th, prosecutor Hans Moss officially declared the case closed and that no charges would be filed due to the lack of evidence. The prosecution indicated a continuing interest in Vandersloot and the Cowpoe brothers, though they legally ceased to be suspects, and alleged that one of the three in a chat room message had stated that Natalie was dead. Mm. This was hotly contested by Dipak Calpo's attorney, who stated that the prosecution, in translating from Papamento to Dutch, had misconstrued a reference to a teacher who had drowned as one to Natalie. Okay. Attorney Ronald Wicks also stated, Unless uh, Moss finds a body in the bathroom of one of these kids, there's no way in hell they can arrest them anymore. So We'll see about that. <laughs> On January 31st, 2008, Dutch crime reporter Peter R. DeVries claimed that he had solved Natalie's case. Okay. DeVries stated that he would tell... He would do a tell-all on a special television program on Dutch television on February 3rd. So this guy's just like, I know what happened. Yeah. On February 1st, the Dutch media reported that Vandersloot made a confession regarding Natalie's disappearance. Later that day, Vandersloot stated that he was telling the individual what he wanted to hear and denied any involvement in her disappearance. That same day, what? the Aruba Prosecutor's Office announced the reopening of the case. So, Vandersloot's just telling this guy what he wants to hear. Quote, what he wants to hear. But. I think he's telling the truth. Lying. Yeah, I think he's lying, saying that he want, he was telling the individual what he wanted to hear. I think that's a lie. I think he was probably telling the truth, then got caught up, then backtracked. Yeah. So, the broadcast aired on February... February? Wow. Okay. <laughs> the broadcast aired on February 3rd, 2008, included excerpts... Excerpts? Excerpts? Okay. Am I start? saying that right? Excerpts? Okay. Excerpts. Eggs. <laughs> excerpts. Okay. The broadcast aired on February 3rd, 2008, including excerpts... You said it again. Uh, You said excerpts. Excerpts. Okay. Why does that sound so weird? Go ahead. The broadcast aired on February 3rd, 2008, included excerpts. (laughs) Guys, I've tried to pronounce this word three times. My brain's not working. Excerpts. Excerpts from (laughs) footage. From footage recorded from hidden cameras and microphones in the vehicle of Patrick Vanderham, a Dutch businessman and ex-convict who gained Vandersloot's confidence. Okay. We're just going to skip right over what I just said. Okay. okay? <laughs> Vandersloot was seen smoking marijuana. Nice. Bad, bad boy. <laughs> just like Kirsten said, like, the bad, first bad episode. Bad, bad boy. 
JK, JK, and stating that he was with Natalie when she began convulsively shaking and then became unresponsive. Vandersloot stated that he attempted to revive her without success. He said that he called a friend who told Vandersloot to go home and who disposed of the body. Of the body. Man, I can't talk today. Of the body. An individual reputed to be this friend, identified in the broadcast as Dari, has denied Vandersloot's account, indicating that he was then in Rotterdam at school. The Aruban prosecutor's office attempted to ad- obtain an arrest warrant for Vandersloot based on the tapes. However, a judge denied the request. The prosecutor appealed the denial, but the appeal failed on February 14th. The appeals court held that the statements on the tape were inconsistent with the evidence in the case and were insufficient to hold Vandersloot. On February 8th, Vandersloot met with the Rubin investigators in the Netherlands and denied that what he said on tape was true, stating that he was under the influence of marijuana at the time. Vandersloot indicated that he still maintains that he left Natalie behind on the beach. In March 2008, news reports indicated that Vander M. Yeah, that sounds a lot better. In March 2008, news reports indicated that Vander M. was secretly taped after giving an interview for Rubin Television. Vander M. was under the impression that cameras had been turned off, disclosed that he had been a friend of Vandersloot for years, contradicting his statement on DeVry's show that he had met Vandersloot in 2007 and that he expected to become a millionaire through his involvement in the Natalie case, in the Natalie case, in the Holloway case, and that he knew the person who supposedly disposed of Holloway's body, and that Vandersloot had asked him for 2,000 euros to buy the man's silence. According to Dutch news service ANP, Vander M., who had already signed a book deal, was furious after learning of the taping and threatened the interviewer, who sought legal advice. Vander M's book, Overboard, co-written with E.E. Byers, was released in Dutch on June 25th. All of these people are writing books. Man, about something that they don't even know about. Yeah, really. about something that they weren't involved in. Right. Vander M was arrested on December 13th in the Netherlands for allegedly hitting his girlfriend with a crowbar and engaging in risky behavior driving. While fleeing police. The fuck? Hitting his girlfriend with a crowbar? Yep. The DeVries broadcast was discussed in a seminar by Dutch legal psychologist William Albert Wagonar, who indicated that the statements did not constitute a confession. Wagonar criticized DeVries for broadcasting the material, stating that the broadcast made it harder to obtain a conviction and had DeVries turned over the material to the authorities without broadcasting it, they would have held all the trumps in questioning Vandersloot. Just, they would have had the upper hand, basically. Mm -hmm. Wagonar opined that not only was the case not solved, it was not even clear that a crime had been committed. And Professor Brantz, in the same seminar, also criticized DeVries' methods. On November 24th, Fox News aired an interview with Vandersloot in which he alleged that he sold Holloway into sexual slavery, receiving money both when Natalie was taken and later on to keep quiet. 
Vandersloot also alleged that his father paid off two police officers who had learned that Natalie was taken to Venezuela. Venezuela? Yep. Vandersloot later retracted the statements made in the interview. Fox News also aired part of an audio recording provided by Vandersloot, which he alleged is a phone conversation between him and his father, in which the father displays knowledge of his son's purported involvement in human trafficking. This case is all over the place. Yep. According to Moss, this voice heard on the recording is not that of Paulus Vandersloot. The Dutch newspaper De Telegraaf reported that the father's voice is almost certainly that of Duran Vandersloot himself trying to speak in a lower tone, which is his Vandersloot's full name. Mm-hmm. Paulus died of a heart attack on February 10th of 2010. So his dad died. Vandersloot's dad. Sad. On March 20th, 2009, Dave Holloway transported a search dog to Aruba to search a small reservoir in the northern part of the island. The reservoir was previously identified by a supposed witness as a possible location of Natalie's remains. Aruban authorities indicated that they had no new information in the case, but that David had been given permission to conduct the search. Natalie's father. On February 23, 2010, it was reported that Vandersloot had stated in an interview that he had disposed of Holloway's body in a marsh on Aruba. He, he, he keeps changing his story, mm-hmm. and I don't know what to believe anymore. New I- Chief Prosecutor Peter Blinken indicated that authorities had investigated the latest story and had dismissed it. Blinken stated that the locations, names, and times he gave just did not make sense. Okay. In March 2010, underwater searches were conducted by Aruban authorities after an American couple reported that they were snorkeling when they photographed what they thought might be human skeletal remains, which investigators also thought may be Natalie. Uh oh. Aruban authorities sent divers to investigate, but no remains were ever recovered. What the fuck? <laughs> On March 29, 2010, contacted John Q. Kelly which is Beth Twitty's legal representative, with an offer to reveal the location of Natalie's body and the circumstances surrounding her death if he were given advance of $25,000 against a total of 250000 which was the original offer. So he doesn't know anything, is what he's been saying this whole time. Mm-hmm. But now he knows where her body is. Apparently. Yeah. Fucking A. So after um, Beth Twitty's legal representative notified the FBI. They arranged to proceed with the transaction. On May 10th, Vandersloot had a 15000 had $15,000 wire transferred to his account in the Netherlands following the receipt of 10000 in cash that was videotaped by undercover investigators in Aruba. Authorities stated that the information that he provided in return was false because the house in which he said Natalie's body was located had not yet been built at the time of her disappearance. He just wanted the money. On June 3rd, Vandersloot was charged in the U.S. District Court of Northern Alabama with extortion and wire fraud. U.S. Attorney Joyce White Vance obtained an arrest warrant and transmitted it to Interpol, which is the International Criminal Police Organization. On June 30th, Vandersloot was indicted on the charges. At the request of the U.S. 
Justice Department, authorities conducted a June 4th raid and confiscated items from two homes in the Netherlands. One of the homes belonged to reporter Jap Amez, who had previously interviewed Vandersloot and claimed knowledge of his criminal activities. Aruban investigators used information gathered from the extortion case to launch a new search at the beach, but no new evidence was found, unfortunately. Jesus. So Dave Holloway returned to Aruba on June 14th to pursue possible new clues. On May 30th, 2010, five years to the day after Holloway's disappearance, Stephanie Flores Ramirez, a 21-year-old business student, was reported missing in Lima, Peru. She was found dead three days later in a hotel room, registered in whose name? Vandersloot's name. What the fuck? On June 3rd, Vandersloot was arrested in Chile on the murder charge and extradited to Peru the next day. This guy's going to so many countries. On June 7th, Peruvian authorities said that Vandersloot confessed to killing Flores after he lost his temper because she accessed his laptop without permission and found information linking him to Natalie. Yeah. Dumbfounded. Police chief Cesar Guardia related that Vandersloot told Peruvian police that he knew where Natalie's body was and offered to help Aruban authorities find it. Yeah, I've heard that before. However, Guardia stated that the interrogation was limited to their case in Peru and that questions about Natalie's disappearance were avoided. Because they were just investigating, um, sorry, Stephanie's murder. It had nothing, well, quote-unquote, nothing to do with yeah. Natalie's disappearance. On June 11th, Vandersloot was charged in Lima Superior Court with first-degree murder and robbery. On June 15th, Aruban and Peruvian authorities announced an agreement to cooperate and allow investigators from Aruba to interview Vandersloot at Miguel Castro Castro Prison in Peru. In a September 2010 interview from prison, Vandersloot reportedly admitted to the extortion plot, stating, I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents have been making my life tough for years. Well, he's been making their lives tough. Yeah. Literally. Because he knows. I know he knows. Mm-hmm. On January 11, 2012, Vandersloot pleaded guilty to murdering Flores and was sentenced to 28 years in prison. 28 years ain't long enough. In June 2011, which was six years after Natalie's disappearance, Dave Hollowell filed a petition with the Alabama courts to have his daughter declared legally dead. The papers were served on his ex-wife, Beth Twitty, who announced her petition intention to oppose the petition yeah i would not a hearing was held on september 23rd 2011 at which time probate judge alan king ruled that dave holloway had met the requirements for a legal presumption of death i wouldn't want that for my child on january 12th 2012 a second hearing was held after which judge king signed the order declaring natalie hollowell to be dead i see why her mom didn't want yeah. Did it wanted to oppose it. Yeah, I mean her mom still wants her to be alive, you know. Until I see a body. Yeah. I'm not declaring anybody dead. Right. I will not. Cause I feel like that also closes the case. Yeah. And it it puts you down. Like yeah. it discourages you, makes yeah. you think that you're never gonna find them. Yeah. If you just Well, they're probably dead, so we yeah. might as well declare them dead. When she could 
have been out there the whole time. You never know. Right. On November 12, 2010, Torres found a jawbone on an Aruban beach near the Phoenix Hotel in Bubbly Swamp. Preliminary examination by a forensic expert determined that the bone was from a young woman. Uh-oh. A part of the bone was sent to The Hague for testing by the Netherlands Forensic Institute. On November 23, 2010, Aruba Solicitor General Taco Stein, <laughs> love the name, bro. Yeah. Taco. Announced that based on dental records, the jawbone was not of Natalie and it was not even possible to determine whether it had come from a man or a woman. But isn't that like the most identifiable way is by your... By your teeth, by, by your, your dental teeth, records. Yeah. yeah. In 2016, Dave Holloway hired a private investigator, TJ Ward, to once more go through all evidence and information related to the disappearance of his daughter. This led to an informant, Gabriel, who claimed to have been a roommate of one of Vandersloot's closest friends, American John Ludwig, in 2005. Gabriel claimed that Ludwig was told what become of Natalie, what became of Natalie. In an interview with the Oxygen television channel, Gabriel gave a detailed description of what happened on the night of Natalie's disappearance. Oxygen created a new documentary series on Natalie's disappearance that aired on August 19, 2017. Using Gabriel's information, the investigator had found what appeared to be human bones. On October 3, 2017, DNA testing concluded that one piece of bone was human, but it did not belong to Natalie. How are they just finding all these pieces of skeletons that... I have no idea. That's crazy. On the show, Ludwig claimed to have helped Vandersloot dig up, smash, and cremate Natalie's bones in 2010. What the fuck? I was going to say Holloway. In February 2018, Elizabeth Holloway sued the producers, alleging this and other claims are fictional and harmfully lurid, and that she was misled into providing a DNA sample for comparison without being made aware of plans for a show. In March 2018, Ludwig was stabbed to death by a woman he tried to kidnap. Okay, good for her, though. Yeah. For fighting back. My goodness. Right. I'm going to pause because I need another drink. Okay. We're about done, I think. I have to pee. I'm trying to wait. Yeah, like <clears throat> nine pages left. So, the Twitties and their supporters criticized a perceived lack of progress by Reuben police. The Twitties' own actions in Aruba were also criticized, and the Twitties were accused of actively stifling any evidence that might impunge Natalie's character by asking her fellow students to remain silent about the case and using their access to the media to push their own version of events. Um, the Twitties denied this. In televised interviews and in a book, Beth Twitty alleged that Vandersloot and, Cal and the Calpo brothers knew more about Natalie's disappearance than they have told authorities, and that at least one of them sexually assaulted or raped her daughter. Dang. On July 5, 2005, following the initial release of the Calpos, Beth alleged two suspects were released yesterday who were involved in a violent crime against my daughter and referred to the Calpos as criminals. 
A demonstration involving about 200 Arubans took place that evening outside their Rangisted courthouse. The prosecutors were angry over Beth's remarks, with signs reading, Innocent until proven guilty, and Respect our Dutch laws or go home. Satish Kalpo's attorney threatened legal action and described Beth's allegations as prejudicial, judicial, inflammatory, libellous, and totally outrageous. On July 8, 2005, Beth read a statement that said her remarks were fueled by despair and frustration and that she apologized to the Aruban people and to the Aruban authorities if I or my family offended you in any way. In her 2007 book, Loving Natalie, A Mother's Testament of Hope and Faith, Beth wrote that what we want is we want justice, and you know, and we have to recognize the fact that, you know, this crime has been committed on the island of Aruba, and we know the perpetrators. We know it's these suspects, Deepak and Satash, Satash Kalpo and Jaron Vandersloot, and you know, we just have to, though, keep going, Nancy, because the only way we will get justice for Natalie is if we do keep going. I mean, if we give up, absolutely nothing will happen. Nothing. Following the airing of the DeFries program on Dutch television, Beth adhered to the position that the tapes represented the way events transpired and told the New York Post that she believed her daughter might still be alive if Vandersloot had called for help. She contended that Vandersloot had dumped Holloway's body, possibly alive, into the Caribbean Ocean. So when he said Natalie was convulsing, that story that he mm -hmm. had mentioned, that's what she's talking about. Okay. Beth also alleged that the person Vandersloot supposedly called that evening was his father, Paulus, who, according to Beth, orchestrated what to do next. Natalie's parents alleged that Vandersloot was receiving special legal favors. After the court decision not to rearrest Vandersloot was affirmed, Beth stated, I think that what I do take comfort in, his life is a living hell. Later adding, I'd be good with a Midnight Express prison anywhere for Jerome. Yeah. In response to her daughter's disappearance, Beth founded the International Safe Travels Foundation, a nonprofit organization designed to inform and educate the public to keep them to help them travel more safely as they travel internationally. In May 2010, she announced that the Natalie Holloway Resource Center would open at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. Located in Washington, D.C., the center opened on June 8th to aid families of missing people. Nice. Natalie's family initially discouraged a travel boycott of Aruba, but this changed by September 2005. Beth urged that people not travel to Aruba and other Dutch territories because of what she stated were tourist safety issues. Which, I don't know if that's really fair to say because... That's probably how they make a lot of their money. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. In a November 8, 2005 news conference, Governor Bob Riley and the Holloways urged Alabamians and others to boycott Aruba. Which, like I said, I don't think is necessarily right, but I think she's coming from a place of hurt. Yeah, I don't obviously. think you should, like, boycott the whole country. Yeah. The whole island. The whole island. Country, island. Whatever. Well, it's a Dutch, like... A Dutch 
territory. That's gotcha, what I wanted gotcha. to say. So, so Riley also wrote to other United States governors seeking their support. The governors of Georgia and Arkansas eventually joined in on the call for a boycott. Philadelphia's city council voted to ask the Pennsylvania governor, Ed Rendell, to call for a boycott. Rendell did not do so, and no federal support was given. The boycott was supported by some of Alabama's congressional delegation, including both senators and Representative Spencer Baucus, who represents Mountain Brook, which is where Natalie went to school. Mm-hmm. Senator Richard Shelby voiced his support for the boycott in a letter to the American Society of Travel Agents. Shelby stated, For the safety, security, and well-being of our citizens, I do not believe that we can trust that we will be protected while in Aruba. Prime Minister Odeber stated that Aruban investigators have done their best to solve the case and responded to the, bo- the call for boycott. This is a preposterous and irresponsible act. We are not guerrillas. We are not terrorists. We do not pose a threat to the United States nor to Alabama. Which I think he was in his right. Yeah. They didn't do anything wrong. No. Members of the Aruba Hotel and Tourism Association the Aruba Tourism Authority, the Aruba Hospitality and Security Foundation, the Aruban Chamber of Commerce, and government figures, including Public Relations Representative Ruben Trappenberg, formed an Aruba Strategic Communications Task Force to respond collectively to what they perceived to be an unfounded and or negative portrayals of the island. The group issued press releases and sent representatives to appear in news media. They joined the Aruban government in opposing the calls for a boycott of the island. So, on September 15, 2005, the Dr. Phil television show did show parts of a hidden camera interview with Deepak Kalpo in which he seemingly affirmed a suggestion that Holloway had sex with all three men. Oh. This is just some of the aftermath that came out. That's mm-hmm. basically what I'm going over. The taming had been instigated by Jamie Skeeters, a private investigator. When the tape was broadcasted, news reporters indicated an expectation of re-arrest, which Don Pink termed a strong possibility if the tapes were legitimate. Aruban police subsequently provided a fuller version of the relevant part of the tape in which Calpo's response differed from the Dr. Phil version, apparently due to the editing that may have altered the meaning of what was said. Obviously, because Dr. Phil is like a reality garbage TV show. Yeah, it's stupid. An unofficial Aruban-affiliated spokesperson and commentator on the case said that the uncut videotape showed that Calpo had shaken his head and said, no, she didn't. So they edited it. Yeah, to make it look like that's what she did. Yeah. According to an MSNBC report, the crucial words were inaudible, and presenter Rita Cosby questioned if it could be substantiated that Calpo had ever made the statements attributed to him in the Dr. Phil version of the recording. In December 2006, the Calpos filed a slander and libel suit against Skeeters, who did die in January of 2007, and Dr. Phil. In Los Angeles, California. I don't know how Dr. Phil still airs. I don't either. 
Natalie's parents responded by filing a wrongful death lawsuit against the Calpos in the same venue. So while they were suing Dr. Phil, uh, Beth Twitty and um, Jug Twitty were, we're filing suing. a wrongful death lawsuit against them. Mm-hmm. The wrongful death suit was dismissed for lack of personal jurisdiction on June 1st, 2007. The libel and slander case was initially set for trial on October 12th, 2011, but was later set for April 2015. An earlier suit had been filed in New York City by Natalie's parents against Jeron and Paulus Vandersloot and served on them on a visit to New York. The case had been dismissed in August 2006 as filed in an inconvenient form. On November 10, 2005, Paulus Vandersloot won an unjust detention action against the Aruban government, clearing him as a suspect and allowing him to retain his government contract. The elder Vandersloot then brought a second action, seeking monetary damages for himself and his family because of his false arrest. The action was initially successful, but the award of damages was reversed on appeal. The Amigo newspaper reported on interviews with Julia Renfro and Dom Pig in which they stated that Aruban authorities, authorities had been systematically obstructed in their investigation by U.S. officials. They also said that within a day of Natalie being reported missing, a med jet, which was unauthorized by Aruban authorities, had arrived on Aruba and had remained for several days for the purpose of covertly taking Natalie off the island without notifying local authorities. So, like, if she was hurt or injured, that job was going to take her and they weren't going to tell him. Mm-hmm. Like, they might have told him, but... I mean, she needed to stay for questioning and stuff. Yeah. You know, she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Renfro, an American-born editor of an English-language daily, Aruba Today, who at the time of Natalie's disappearance had become close friends with Beth also said she and Beth received a phone call from an unknown unknown woman on June 2, 2005, asking for money in return for information about Natalie's location and asserting that um, Natalie was unwilling to return to her mother. Hmm. Yeah. According to Renfro, she and another American went to a drug house where Natalie supposedly was bringing money but found that Jug Twitty had already been to the area, spreading a lot of uproar and panic in the direct vicinity, and nothing could be accomplished. So the Twitties disputed Renfro's accounts, with Beth Twitty describing Renfro as a witch. I also wanted to say that Dave Holloway also published his own book on April 11, 2006. Um, it's called Aruba, The Tragic Unstold untold story of natalie holloway and corruption in paradise that basically recounted the search for his daughter Mm -hmm. and uh natalie at the time of her disappearance was covered widely in the u.s so i'd be surprised if you didn't know it and to this day it remains a cold case dang that sucks yeah yeah no i had never heard of this case it's pretty crazy yeah, that sucks that it's hasn't been solved. Mm-hmm. And at this point, who knows if it will be. I mean, I hope it does. I, I really do, but a lot of these cold cases, you know, after so long. I think it's said, like, according to, like, the cold case files. Mm-hmm. Like, less than 1% of cold cases are ever yeah. solved. 
which so, is crazy. That is crazy. Well, that's sad. It definitely is. Yeah. Well, well. If you're sad, go subscribe to our Patreon. No, just kidding. There's some happy stuff on there. There is some <laughs> happy stuff on there. But uh, other than that, I don't think we have much else. Subscribe to our Patreon. Yep. Do that. Yep. Catch you later. <laughs> We're very like... Because <laughs> it was so sad. Yeah. Sad now. Well, we'll uh, see you in the next one. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>